Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says this. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. There's a topic around the church that we often should talk about, but we don't. If we do talk about it, we tend to talk about one aspect, but not other aspects of it. But it is central to our faith, and it is central to the gospel. It is central to understanding this idea of what is this good news. That topic is grace. How big is it? How far does it go? Where does it end? How much do I get to receive? What is my responsibility to give to others? There are so many facets around the topic of grace. And one of the reasons we're going through the parable of the prodigal son is because it talks about two different sons, which represent two different groups of people that are listening to Jesus teaching this parable. I grew up hearing the story of the prodigal son as the story of the younger son who needs to come to Jesus and the love of the father who loves him. End of story. And what's interesting about this story is there is no resolution to this story. There is a telling of the story. We kind of reach this interesting climax and then it just ends and Jesus moves on to another topic. This is also a part of a sermon that Jesus is giving in which he's already talked about this in other ways. And this is just another way he's trying to make a point to the people who are just gathered around watching. So we have a younger brother who's this kind of irreligious person who's not interested in what the father has. Father figure is is clearly God in this situation. But the younger son just is uninterested in the father himself, but he's interested in what the father can do for him. And he wants everything he can get from the father without having the father so he can run off and live his own life and do what he wants. And that group of people is represented by a number of irreligious people that have gathered around to listen to Jesus. And Jesus is not just talking out here in this this weird language about these theoretical people. He's talking about the people that are sitting right in front of him listening. And then next week we're going to talk about the elder brother, where the elder brother feels like he's doing everything right and is really angry with the younger brother. And even when the younger brother comes back, He still cannot let go of his anger. And the story ends with the father pleading with this older brother who has just made this kind of moralistic figure to say, I am doing it the right way. You did it the wrong way. And I'm not okay with you being welcomed back. The story ends with the father pleading with the elder brother. Your brother is home. Let's welcome him. This is a reason for joy. And the story ends. We have no idea what happens with the older brother. We have no idea what happens with the younger brother. And so summarizing the prodigal son in simply the language of the younger brother has come to faith and God is excited about it. That, is, as that being the point of the story misses the bigger picture Jesus is trying to tell us. And so as we sit in this room, there are some of us that may be irreligious and yet we're still here. And there are some of us who are moralistic who feel like we get it and we do it right and no one else does it right like we do. But in this story, both of those people are lost. 
And in the case of the elder brother, the other audience that's sitting out there listening to these teachings are the Pharisees and the Sadducees trying to trip Jesus up, trying to find fault in what he's saying because he's clearly challenging their authority in the community. And so the elder brother represents them. I will tell you if um, you're already a little nervous about which one are, are you, certainly there's a third option. I know there are days I'm the irreligious son. Anybody else relate to that in this room? And there are other days I'm the moralistic elder brother. And I feel like I do it better than everybody else and I don't want to let everyone know it. We all go through these moments, but this parable should be on our mind to remind us what is this grace really all about. So our topic today is grace and what we're going to do is just walk through the story of the younger brother um, and then that's, that's what we're going to do today. The story we're going to read is in Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11, and we're going to start with the beginning, and then we're going to just kind of break it up as we go through this story. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. I shared a little bit about this part of the story last week. That in this culture, inheritance is a very big deal. We joke with our kids um, that there will be no inheritance. <laughs> um, we'll take them out to dinner and say, enjoy your inheritance. You know. Inheritance today is still very important. But not like it was then. At this point, whenever a father has two sons uh, and the father dies, the inheritance is going to go to his sons. And he received it probably from his father. And he received it from his father, from his father, and on up the line. And so whatever, whatever estate they have, they have gathered over multiple generations that gets passed down from son to son to son. Their culture was not like ours, like... Uh, Jake just graduated college, um, he's getting ready to, he's, he's working to apply to some graduate schools and he may go away to graduate school um, and then I don't know what he's going to do after that. Emma's going to graduate college um, and hopefully she's going to make it in physical therapy school and then she's going to try to get a job somewhere and I don't know where she's going to end up. Jonathan will go to college next year and he'll do the same thing and figure out what he's going to do and maybe they will stay in this town but maybe they won't. For some of you, your kids stay here and they moved away. For some of you, your parents are in another town and you're not living with their town. But I, I, a lot of, most of us do not live with our parents for the rest of our lives until they die and then we inherit what they had and the mom and dad's house now is our house. Most of us will not experience that. So the, even the very setting of this story is outside the norm of what we experience in a modern Western world. We grow up, we find our way, we move out, we buy our house, we create our own thing with our family, we're connected to extended family members, but our future and our security does not depend on us staying at home. So the way that this is managed when you have multiple sons is the first son is going to get two-thirds of the property the second son is going to get a third of the property. Now, if you have more than one son, in general, the oldest is going to get two shares. Every other son is going to get one share. So if there's five sons, 
the first son's going to get two-fifths, everyone else will get one-fifth. But along with getting that share of the property, share of the assets, share of everything, they're also going to get a double share of the responsibility for the family. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to be the elder brother. And one of the stories that we find this um, pointed out so poignantly is just the um, uh, story of Jacob and Esau. And when Esau barters away his birthright, and he's basically giving away his double portion of inheritance. And what you also need to know about this whole story is, just like many of us, our assets are not something that we can write a check for right now. How many of us could take one-third of our entire net worth and we could write a check and hand it off? Probably not many of us. It's tied up in retirement plans. It's tied up in property, in our homes. It's tied up in all kinds of different places. Most of us are not that liquid that we could do it. And for a father to give him his third of his inheritance means to sell off land, to diminish the assets, to diminish the property, so that even though the older son is going to get two-thirds, he still is losing quite a bit of the family inheritance. It's just gone. In addition, in this culture, the father is an incredibly important figure. And so for you to lose ground on the family plot is a reason for great shame and ridicule in the community. What a terrible manager of his family this father would be said. Now we read this story kind of knowing the context and thinking, what a loving father. But if this happened... In this culture, the father is not just giving his son what he's asking, he is also taking on the ridicule of the community and he's willing to give this to his son at great loss to himself and his reputation. It's an incredible story when we dive in and understand some of the dynamics of just the culture. And then what's probably the greatest offense here would be if your child came up to you and said, I want your stuff, but I don't want you in my life. Now, if you're a child in here, you probably can't really relate to how that would feel, but if you're a parent or a grandparent in here, you know exactly how that would feel. I would just break your heart. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Now certainly in the context of the good news, whenever we are lost, whenever we do not have a relationship with Jesus, whenever we are not interested in what God is wanting to do in our lives, we certainly don't see it in these terms. We simply think about our lives and what is important to us and what we want to do with our lives and how we want to live our lives, how we want to spend our lives. And in this particular story, the irreligious is demonstrated and quite honestly, in some ways, a definition of sin is demonstrated here that goes against the way we typically define sin. Whereas sin is often defined as simply that thing that is against God's will, it goes beyond that. And in fact, it, it is all about how we treat each other and how we treat God. The son takes what his father has earned by selling off a third of his property, squanders it on himself. This is a picture of what sin is. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 35, Jesus is answering a Pharisee about what is 
the greatest commandment. And by telling us what the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment are, it defines in many ways what God is looking for out of us if we're going to follow him. Certainly, we can't just say these two things. There are other things behind it. But the big picture of what it means to follow Jesus and to walk with Jesus is simply this. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, every single thing God is trying to do in the world to restore us back to that place before sin entered into the world was a place where we lived in many ways as an incredibly healthy community. With him and with each other. And I think we can all agree by just watching the news and watching TV and even the people we work with and the people we, we sit next to or our neighbors, I would not say that the world is screaming that we are a healthy community. <laughs> In fact, we're broken up into all kinds of pieces, all kinds of people that we would just rather not have anything to do with. The good news is that we can return to that kind of a world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of others, to love God and to love others. Back to the story. Verse 14 of Luke 15. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, when we come to this part of the story, it's not hard to understand. He's blown through the inheritance, which is a pretty significant sum of money. And while not every irreligious person is irresponsible with their money, in general, when we understand the greatest and the second greatest commandment, His sin is still, I want all of this for me to do whatever I want for me. I have no interest in what is best for others. What I want is what is best for me. And he squanders it and it's gone and he finds himself in a world that has the exact same worldview and he finds no one wants to now help him. He's alone and he recognizes, you know, back at my dad's house, They treated you like you were a part of the family. Back at my dad's house, even the lowest person on the totem pole had somebody looking out for them, and if somebody was hungry, somebody gave them food. In my dad's house, there's a very different world than out here because out here, everybody looks out for themselves. Everybody wants something for themselves, and people are not interested in helping the person who is in need. But at home, it is a very different scenario. So what I need to do is I need to go home And maybe dad will take care of me, not as the son, but even if I'm the lowest on the the totem pole, at least I'm not going to go hungry and I'm not going to live in this pig slop. It's a really different reading of this story. Because the gospel often for us 
is about how we're going to get to heaven, how we're going to be okay with God, how we're going to escape judgment, and how God is going to be at least okay with us and not work against us. But that is not the story that the gospel is trying to tell, and that is not the good news that Jesus is trying to promote to us. If you remember our, our, our series through Genesis, I, I, I go back to Genesis all the time because the Bible goes back to Genesis all the time. And we find in that um, interesting narrative where sin has entered in and God is walking in the garden. He comes and asks them some questions. And you know those questions if you've been coming here for any amount of time. And one of those questions is, where are you? Because we are the irreligious son who left. The father didn't leave. We left. And here's one of the interesting things about the gospel. And this is where we, we like to read verses that talk about it's, it's about grace and not about works. And yet we don't always really function as a church based on that reality. If we really embrace the idea that salvation is about grace and not about works, then we then have to struggle with well, then this idea of universalism, does every single person, regardless of whether they respond or not, are they still saved? And the scriptures would, be, would clearly say, well, no. And so we have this juggling back and forth between, well, but if it's not works and we still have to do something, that feels like works. But yet Jesus constantly says, if you are not following, you will not experience the kingdom of God. And what we found also through the Old Testament is you have the ability to experience eternal life after you die, but you have the ability to experience eternal life right now. There is a, a way of life, a quality of life. There is walking with God and experiencing life here in this world and in the next. We have to understand how does a person receive it versus not receive it. And sometimes it is as simple as saying, it's about the choices we make. I make a bad choice. Life does not feel like heaven. You know? I make a good choice. But let's be honest. Sometimes when we make a good choice, that doesn't feel like heaven either. Anybody ever make the right choice and it hurts worse than the wrong choice? Now how, do we, how do we figure this stuff out? Let's come back to the story. And interestingly, what we find is the response of the younger son tells a lot about the story. But we do, again, have to understand a bit more about the culture than we do today. Because he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'll go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now this household that has been built generation after generation after generation, that could include thousands of acres of land, innumerable amount of workers, is absolutely going to involve people who um, are part of the family. But eventually their property is going to grow to some level that they themselves cannot work the whole land, protect the whole land, provide for everybody and so they're going to bring in people to help 
There are two types of people that are going to come in and help that you'll read about throughout the Old Testament. There's a hired servant, and then there's a slave. And we hate slave language because of our own history as a nation and the history of humanity in our current world. Even 100 years ago, it was current in this world. And the idea of a slave at this time is not exactly the idea of slave that pops into our head when we think about the, the history of the world when it, as it does, pertains to slavery. Some would come in because they have nothing and they would be received as a slave and they would get to live there, they would get to be fed, they would earn a wage, and then eventually they would be freed and they would get to take their earnings with them if they wanted to or they could stay. It was not so much the you are trapped and imprisoned, you have no rights, you have no value. It was not the same scenario of what a slave was. But if you listen to what the younger son's saying, he's not saying I want to be a slave. He's not saying I even want to live in the, in the house again. I'm not asking to be a son. I recognize I have screwed up. And I want to be a hired servant. So a hired servant is just like you do with your job. You don't live, I hope, where you work. I, maybe some of you do. I hope you don't. You live, you have a home, you go and you do your things, and then when it's time for you to go to work, you go to work, and then after you've worked so many hours, then you're going to get a wage, and then you use that wage to live on. That's what he's asking for. So I imagine if the younger son showed back up living in the house again, he's probably going to get his old room back. And he's probably going to get his old wardrobe back. And he's probably going to get to live pretty well. He's not asking for that. He's not asking to be brought into the house. He's not asking to be seen as a son. He's just asking for a job to be treated with dignity and be able to survive and to eat. All after recognizing, I have really screwed up. I have found in our our kind of southern culture here, I have found that a lot of times our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is not predicated by a feeling of great need for a rescue, but instead a great opportunity for a pretty good life after we die. Now, culturally, the South has been for a couple of hundred years incredibly religious. Some of you I know have transplanted from other parts of the country, and in other parts of the country, it is very different here. Churches seem very different than it is here, and those who are involved in the church in different parts of the country view their faith very differently where, where it's very cultural here. It is a very common practice in a lot of our churches, and I'm not making a judgment about large, influential, affluential churches, but a lot of them were built from people learning that they can make a buck in a southern large church by selling their services there. And remember in our church, we had to outlaw, when I was a kid, they had to outlaw the sales practice of coming into the church. And we had, I don't know, we had all kinds of these pyramid programs. And at one time, the pastor of the church joined a pyramid program and wanted all of their church members to join in. If you're not familiar with the pyramid program, basically you set up a network of business and they pay you to be in your network and then you go out and get do all the work and then they get a piece of everything that you make. 
thereby being at the top of the network, you never have to work again. You just keep recruiting people to give you a part of what they're getting. They're all illegal now. Few of them still stick around, but they're all illegal now, and they're all seen as a bad idea. But the church has always been seen for opportunities other than I am lost, I have sinned, I have screwed up, and I need a rescue. If you remember when we went through Exodus, we talked about Abram. And we found that in the story of Abram, when we go look at the bigger picture of Abram's story, when God called him, he didn't just randomly pick this guy, but he actually picked someone who was also in need of a rescue. And we find that this good news is often given, this good news of a rescue is given to people in need of a rescue. I've known a lot of people that attend church because you're supposed to go to church. But fewer people who came to a moment where they felt, I need a rescue. Our rescues all come in different shapes and sizes. They come in different urgencies. They come with different costs and come with different fears. But at its core, the response to the gospel that brings life-changing transformation within our lives is on some level the desire for a rescue. The younger brother knew that he needed that. Father had two types of workers, slaves and hired servants. He wanted to be a hired servant in part because a hired servant would earn their way back into the family and would not ask for it to be given freely. In some ways, he's saying, I want to pay you back. And this is where we enter into that tricky story of where does works fit? in the whole idea of this grace. This son feels like, I need a rescue, but I'm going to work for it. I'm not going to ask for a, a, a gift. I'm not going to ask for a handout. I'm going to work for this. And then we have this incredible response by the father. The younger son is saying, I have sinned and I know I have wronged you. I am not asking you to reinstate me as your son, but let me work for you and pay you back for what I have squandered and earn my place as your son again. What would it take in your mind? Don't shout this out. What would it take in your mind to earn that place with God? Knowing your background, knowing your history, knowing your past, knowing the thoughts that no one else knows, but God knows them. What in your mind would it take to work off that debt? We probably don't think about that because, quite honestly, we have embraced this idea of grace, and we should. But if you were in his position, gosh, I could just imagine it would be immeasurable. How could he possibly pay back a third of everything that the father had before? The story continues, Luke 15, and we get the father's response. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. 
For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father says, no, you're not going to pay me back. You are family. You are welcomed. I want you here. But yet there is something that precedes that welcome. He still has to walk back home. Have you ever screwed up so royally that you can't stand to see, to look people in the eye that you screwed up? Can you imagine the conversations going on in his head? Can you imagine uh, the, just, the, just the arrogance that he had when he left? Imagine the things that he said as he walked out the door. Just imagine all of the, the ways he would have treated people going out, getting ready to live his best life, to come back having lost everything. Tail between his legs. And he's going to have to walk back. Can you imagine just having to build yourself up and, and, and just, gosh, I got to talk. What am I going to say to my dad when I, when I walk up? And gosh, they're all going to think I'm an idiot and I am an idiot. And just imagine those conversations going through his head. For me, that conversation, as I've shared before, was not quite like that. But my conversation was just simply this. God, this is Mark. Love. I don't know if you remember me. But I've screwed up and I need you. There's a place where we come to our recognition of a need for rescue that we all have that conversation. Tail between our legs, recognizing, I thought I had all this covered, and I don't. He walks up. And he rose and he came. He was still a long way off his father's psalm felt compassion and ran. A few things we can just pull out of here. I want you to think about just yourself. Put yourself in this person's position. Maybe you've been a Christian for years and years and years and years. Maybe you're someone who's thinking about it and you're not quite sure. Maybe you're a new believer. Or maybe you were a believer at one point and you thought about it and now you're not so sure. Things I think are really important about the character of God. And how we understand this grace is one, the Father was looking for him. He was looking for him. See, in this culture, what should have happened is the Father should have kicked him out when he asked for his inheritance and disowned him as a son. That's what would have happened in this culture. But he didn't. He gave him what he asked for, knowing that his son was saying, you mean nothing to me. I only want your stuff. And yet, even after that great betrayal, the father just looked for him. Jesus says in John's revelation, I stand at the door and knock. If you're the supreme um, deity of all existence... Like, you don't knock, right? Like, you sit on your throne and you wait for people to come to you and then they've got to go through all of the filters before they get to talk to you face to face, right? But that the picture Jesus gives us is of a a man standing in a door knocking, hoping somebody's going to open the door while he has every authority to kick the door in but refuses to use it. He stands at the door and he knocks. The Father was looking for him. 
The father ran to him. Here's another thing you don't do. You're a patriarch, manager of a vast estate. You don't run. Other people run. You direct other people to run. They also don't wear pants. So when you run, things show that shouldn't show. You know what I'm saying? Just picture that in your own mind. You're welcome for that. Welcome to journey. You don't run. And yet his exuberance to have his son back, he's running. The father ran to him. While the son wasn't asking to be reinstated as his son, the father did it anyways, without demanding that he pay anything back. He was fully willing to pay. When you need a rescue, you receive that rescue, you are fully willing to pay and he says no it is paid for you it's just paid for you it's an incredible story of this irreligious son and it would be great if it would stop here and it would just be a big celebration there's one person who doesn't yet know he's back and that is big brother who's the coming matriarch or matriarch patriarch to follow his father and he's not happy we'll talk about that next week he gave him a robe he gave him a signet ring the entire homestead the servants the slaves the family everyone would have taken partaken in this big festival they would kill the fatted calf they would eat of it it was a celebration in the community Because so much about the gospel is about community. An individual on a deserted island can come to faith in Christ and experience the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in a room full of people, the gospel is not fully experienced until the community together experiences the gospel together. Because the greatest commandment is that we will love the Lord our God with all our hearts, our soul, and our mind. And the second is like it, that we will love each other as we love ourselves. There is something about returning to the Garden of Eden that is community-based. So how we treat each other, how we talk to each other, what we do when we're in the room together, it matters. Part of eternal life for me is absolutely when we die. As we went through that last year with my dad and as we're going through what appears to be that season with Deidre's mom, we have great hope in life after death. But when life is difficult and you walk into a room of good friends who are there for you to love you and be with you and help you, that's eternal life too. Because in this culture, when they talked about eternal life, they did not talk about the length of life and they didn't talk about when that was going to happen it was a quality of life you could have right now and forevermore. Good news is you can have a higher quality of life than you think, thought you ever could have experienced, but at some point you have to recognize that life is just not all that great and you need a rescue. I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus would say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven because you can buy a whole lot of false happiness. You can distract yourself. You can just 
convince yourself you've got it going on. You can say, I've got this licked because I've got more in the bank than everyone else does. You can buy a whole lot of false happiness, but real happiness is found in our relationships, in our friendships, in our family. So we're making lots of trips up. Deidre's making most of them, but we're making lots of trips up to Sweetwater to see her mom. And when Dad was about to pass away, I made lots of trips and stayed week after week after week up there with him. And the gift to give him was to be there with him in his most difficult moments of his life. was not to take him somewhere. was not to buy him something. It was not to increase his 401k. It was to just be with him. I think it would be a blessing whenever my day comes if I had my friends and my family around me to remember that this is what life is about. Not the things I, I, I fill my head with every day. Not all the things I feel like I need to have before then, then life will make sense and will be good. But simply, these people are important to me and I know I'm important to them. This is part of what the good news is. It's part of the things we look forward to. Now I want you to remember few things one this is one parable follows other parables and he has just spoken out of luke 15 he has just spoken in this parable which you're also familiar with he says what man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it and when he has found it he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing and when he comes home he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This incredible vision of a party in heaven when one person comes to faith, just like one younger, irreligious son comes home and we kill the fattened calf and the whole homestead has a party. It is the same story. It is the story of good news. I want you to remember that there are two characters in this story, an irreligious younger brother who is also representing the irreligious crowd listening, and there is the moralistic Pharisee and Sadducee who represents the older elder brother within this story. This is who Jesus is speaking to. He's trying to help them understand this incredible gift of faith, how, inc- how, how just incredible this opportunity is. So the implications of this are enormous. Number one, the gift of salvation really is a free gift. He is reinforcing that. He is saying that over and over again. When we put things in place to keep people from Jesus until they do X, Y, and Z, we are outside of the bounds of what the gospel really is. And I mean, you you have... I learned a long time ago, if you're going to hold to a theological belief, you have to take that theological belief out as far as it will possibly go. You can't say it works up to here, but then it doesn't work anymore. If this is true then it's got to work all the way. So at what point are we not to put all these barriers in front of people before they can experience the grace of Jesus Christ? I shared with you before we experienced that, and one of the reasons we decided to start a church so many years ago was constantly having people come in that didn't fit the mold. 
And the people that were there encouraging them to go somewhere else. And so they do. Because what happens when you walk into a room and people encourage you to go somewhere else? I don't want to stay if I'm not wanted. We did it with hair, we did it with tattoos, and we did it with kind of music, and we did it with, did you dress up or not dress up? Do all kinds of things we add in there. But what about people who are still trapped in sin? Like, you're welcome when this is no longer a problem for you. Like, when is that going to happen? And so let's take that on out. Let's talk about some of the things that are happening in our culture that absolutely Jesus is not in favor of. But are we going to say, you, like, you can't struggle with those things anymore if you want to come in here. Like, how clean do we have to get before we're rescued? Because in this story, all you got to do is want it. Now, again, we don't have a whole lot to the rest of this story. I imagine that the son still struggled with this. And I imagine his first struggle came once he knew where his next meal was coming from, once he put on the robe again and he put on the ring. (sighs) Well, that worked out. And there's no way he would not have had that thought because that is a human thought. But that's often how transformation happens within the life of a, a Christian. We have those thoughts and then we remember, oh man, but I remember when I was sitting with the pigs. Remember when I had nothing to eat? No, I'm different. No, I'm not going back there. No. It doesn't mean we're not going to struggle. But it absolutely means that we are welcome. The gift of salvation really is a free gift. Here's an uncomfortable question. One we'll dive into another time. Maybe we'll make this a bruising views. I don't know. If we can't do anything to earn it, can we do anything to lose it? That's an uncomfortable question in Southern Christian circles. And like how, like how much do you have to really want it to get it? That's another uncomfortable question. And then how are we going to know if someone really wanted it or not? so that we can judge whether they're really a Christian or not? Another uncomfortable question. The gift must be seen as valuable. I wanted to do a thing. You should know I'm terrible with props. Every prop I've ever used in a sermon, um, there's more laughter at my misuse of the prop than there is at the actual explanation that the prop is supposed to give, so I don't do it anymore. I thought about doing props today. I was going to have like a $20 bill. I was going to have a water bottle filled with toilet water. And uh, see who wanted what. The thing about the gospel is you have to have some, you have to believe there's some level of value in that. That in salvation there is some level of value. If there's deferred value, in other words, like an investment, yeah, I don't really get anything now, but at least if I die, I don't want to burn forever, then that's deferred value. If you're looking for deferred value, then you want the stuff that the Father has, but you don't want the Father himself. Does that make sense? It has to be seen as valuable to us. And coming to church because that's what you do is you go to church, that does not demonstrate the value of the Father. 
And I've just found in my life the value of the Father comes when I realize doing it my way just messes things up. Things don't go well. Relationships get broken. And I don't feel at peace. This must be seen as valuable. That means if it is valuable to us, we do have to look different than the world. If we're no different than the world, why in the world does the gospel seem valuable to them? To us. It doesn't seem valuable to us. We're no different. When we act no different, when we talk no different, when we don't listen to different uh, you know, types of music, there's, I mean, like, I listen to all kinds of music. I don't just listen to Christian music, but there's some music we ought not be listening to, you know? There's some stuff that's just not good. Sometimes I'll hear, you know, Malia out singing a song that's on YouTube Kids for crying out loud. And I'm like, what? what is that? We turn that off. We don't listen to that. But when we willingly listen to stuff that is so dishonoring of God, oh my gosh, then he's not seen as valuable to us. Gosh, we've got to be different than the world. This free gift can't be earned, but we must choose it. It's just going to be a struggle for us to... We're just going to struggle through that. It's a free gift, but we still got to choose it. $20, yeah, somebody's going to say, yeah, I want that gift. You want a water bottle filled with toilet water? I don't want that one. You still got to choose it. It's still available, but you got to choose it. So you already know why I don't do props. I, I wouldn't have worked either, but... Here's the good news, and I'm going to close. The good news is that no matter how broken or battered you are, Jesus wants to fully restore you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter how many times you messed up. It doesn't matter how, how used up you feel. It doesn't matter that you feel like I've got nothing to offer because he's not asking you for anything. He's asking to give you something. He's not asking anything from you. Good news, no matter how broken or battered you are, Jesus wants to fully restore you. The good news is that no matter how many bad choices you have made in your life, you are one choice away from a better life. One choice away from a better life. It doesn't mean all our problems go away. It doesn't mean I've gotten myself into some real financial problems here. Um, Jesus, would you forgive me? Yes. My credit card balance has just disappeared. We've still got to deal with some of this stuff. But we're going to get there. We're going to make it. We're not doing it on our own. You're religious, come to a place of needing rescue. When you recognize your need for rescue, the good news is, is it's available for free. It's for free because Jesus gave his life for us. All right, would you pray with me? Father.